Welcome to episode 159 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Joining us for the news roundup, uh, uh, we continue to uh, bring in guests as well as our usual uh, participants. Uh, so our guest today is Jamil Jaffer, adjunct professor, NSI founder, and director of the National Security Law and Policy Program at George Mason University. And joining us from uh, uh, we rescheduled this so that he could go to Neil Gorsuch's uh, swearing in because you played a pretty significant role in uh, helping him get confirmed. Well, it's uh, it was it's uh, it's a great day. Um, it was a great day yesterday, and uh, a great series of days going forward. Uh, Neil Gorsuch getting confirmed to the Supreme Court. Yeah, it was a tough fight, uh, as 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 I know everybody saw um, in the news. Uh, but uh, he's a great judge, very smart. I think he'll do the nation proud. Correct. That's terrific. Uh, also joining us, Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff, who's uh, the chair of the firm's class action practice. Welcome, Jennifer. Uh, and Maury Shank, uh, who is his, I, I think we're, we're talking to him from uh, Los Angeles, but he's usually based in London, where he has been the managing partner of our London office and is still an advisor to us on technology and cybersecurity issues, an investor uh, and a director in technology companies. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. I want to jump right in. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted uh, Maury on the call uh, was to talk about the remarkable drumbeat of um, enthusiasm for regulating end-to-end encryption coming out of Europe. Uh, um, we've heard from the Germans. We've heard from the French. Uh, Amber Rudd, uh, who's a uh, uh, UK um, uh, home uh, minister, I think, uh, also said it was utterly unacceptable for uh, uh, the uh, uh, large messaging companies to uh, be unable to uh, decrypt messages involving terrorism. Uh, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, Director General for uh, uh, Justice and Home Affairs issues uh, in the European Union, uh, Vera Jarova, uh, uh, said uh, that uh, the EU is planning, the Commission is planning to come up with options. Uh, I, for regulating encryption sometime by the summer. Uh, uh, so, Maury, what do you make of this? Is this as is this real, or is this just another opportunity to beat up U.S. tech companies, or both? Um, or, or option three is you know they're hoping for some result, but they have no idea how to get there. You know, this is not a new issue. You're familiar with this issue from the early 1990s. Yes, and. Um, uh, you know, this is also not new to the UK government with Amber Rudd. In the Cameron administration, David Cameron and some of his ministers were making a lot of noise about the problems with encryption. People have pointed out that the UK uh, Investigatory Powers Act allows a lot of authority for interception of communications, but the problem is, is the equipment providers and software providers like Apple and WhatsApp and things like that aren't directly re- regulated by these encryption r- r- rules, and there's no simple solution. Um, so I think, you know, whenever there's a terrorist attack like this, you get some noise. Um, what the solutions will be are a little hard to see. Yeah, although uh, what Rudd said was that she was in active um, 
dialogue or debate, I think, uh, with uh, uh, four large U.S. tech companies. Uh, so she's clearly trying to come up with something. She's already got the authority to order them to decrypt things that they encrypted, um, uh, but uh, not to order them to design that capability into their encryption. Jamil, you worked on this. Yeah, stuff. I mean, there were- uh, let me let me let me ask Jamil just to jump in here because uh, uh, he was on both the intelligence committee uh, as a staffer and foreign affairs, so you must have followed these issues to some degree. Yeah, you know, it was. I mean, look, it's a uh, it's a it's a huge and uh, difficult topic. I mean, you know, encryption protects all of our transactions online, yep. all of the work we do, um, and for a lot of folks, it protects their their messaging uh, also, and whether you're doing it through WhatsApp or the like. Um, but at the same time, you've got very real uh, law enforcement and national security concerns uh, uh, coming alongside encryption, particularly with this recent spate of terrorist attacks um, in the West, in Europe, um, and and the challenges we saw with the San Bernardino terrorist attacks. Yep. You know? um, and what I worry about in this space is if we can't find some sort of middle ground for the government and the industry to work together, you create a scenario where actually the government goes out and does things on its own. It goes and finds the hacks on the outside. It buys it. It may spend a lot of money. And then industry has the challenge of not knowing what tool was used to get in. They can't protect against it. Um, and then the government has no need to come to the company or go to the courts for an order. Because they're not going to use it in, in, a, in, a, in a proceeding. And as a result, the if you care about privacy, you may actually be worse off if you don't figure out a, a middle ground between the companies and industry, between the companies and and the government uh, at the outset. Well, it, there was a middle ground, and uh, Apple took it off the table. Uh, the, the middle ground was, if you can find a way to update a particular phone so that it is susceptible to intercept in response to a court order, then you need to do that. Uh, and Apple said, oh, no, that's the end of the world. Uh, and uh, so uh, the inability to use the update, or at least to use it now without uh, an enormous political fight, uh, means it's not clear there is much uh, middle ground. I, I, Maury, I wonder whether Europe cares about middle ground. Uh, uh, I think that the question for them is, can we make these big American tech giants do what we want? Uh, And can we uh, muster the political will to to impose solutions on them? Uh, And it's a little unclear to me. I think they could if they were determined to. The question is, do they really have the will to do that? Well, I think the, you know, it being the American tech giant does come into the equation. Although, as you know, Stuart, I often disagree with you whether it's really uh, policy driven versus anti-American driven. And I think the Europeans have the same concerns that Jamil just articulated. You know, it is a really big problem that these uh, communications are absolutely un- un- uh, uninterceptable. But Apple is, you know, maybe there was a solution for iPhones. But for some of the software that runs on, you know, uh, Android phones, they're, you know, Telegram and things like that, super secure. There just isn't a solution um, if the people have the software on the phone. I'm not sure what the way forward is here, frankly. Yeah, I, well, I, I, I think it's going to be very hard. Uh, uh, what's new now is I'm not sure that the Trump administration is going to 
play the this is bad for international relations card as a way of defending the big tech companies who are perceived as having been uh, more Obama favorers, uh, uh, favorites than uh, Republican favorites uh, and as pushing a position that at least uh, uh, Attorney General Sessions and President Trump himself have been pretty skeptical of. So they may not step in and try to uh, ease the pain of European uh, penalties. I, I think that's probably right, but just continuing the thought experiment, I mean, what would the, wouldn't the law have to be something like Google as, administer, as, as administrator of the Android system? You may not distribute it an operating system that will approve encrypted applica- you know, applications with end-to-end encryption. Or, or at least you have to have a way in. To, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's I, a big change to the way the internet works now. I fair enough. If it is, uh, or they could si- simply say, uh, um, if you can't do it, we will fine you, and the fines will get bigger and bigger. Or they could say, uh, uh, that's great. You're making all this money providing end-to-end encryption, and you're providing all these benefits. And then, when there's a, a terrorist attack that could have been prevented by decrypting the communication, you just pay for it. Well. I suppose all those things are on the table. I, I suspect, as in the previous instances, uh, it might not get far, but the, the problem is becoming worse, as Jamil noted. Yeah, I, I, I actually think it's bad enough. To, first, these companies have no internal lobby other than what they pay for uh, in in any of these countries, uh, and so um, the only people who really oppose this are civil liberties groups who worry about security uh, uh, of uh, uh, of the internet. And I'm just not sure that's enough to overcome the emotion and the lack of enthusiasm for big U.S. tech companies that we're going to see. But okay, uh, well, liber- li- libertarian or and security people like Bruce Schneier, who you've had on the podcast, would also oppose these. Things. Yes, they will. I, it, it, it's just I don't know. You know, libertarianism uh, will buy you a cup of coffee in the United States. It won't get you spare change in Europe. Yeah, agreed. All right. Uh, okay, so let's talk uh, real law, uh, or at least uh, litigation. Uh, Wendy's. Um, has two fronts of litigation. Uh, anything interesting in the, what has happened to Wendy's? Well, you know, we're sort of on this course that is increasingly divorced from reality in some respects. So there are, as in many, most of these cases, two parallel tracks. One is brought by the uh, consumers. Uh, that case was allowed to proceed by a federal district court in Florida, notwithstanding a standing challenge that in this case was overruled on the basis of a $3 late fee and the inability to accrue rewards points on a credit card during the period uh, in which the the card had been inactivated and not replaced. So, you know, it's just an example of how these standing decisions are being decided in a way that is completely divorced from the class, right? Because so the named plaintiffs have standing on the basis of these very minor injuries. Right, so you would think that people come to the uh, 
uh, to the settlement conference and say, here's the three bucks plus some miles. Right. <laughs> well, right. But those cases are increasingly different, difficult because none of the lower courts are applying Campbell Ewald, right. the case about mooting through an offer of judgment in a, in a way that's helpful. Very few of them anyway. Um, but, but here, you know, clearly the class of people with standing is far smaller than all of the people who made purchases or the people whose right. data may have been accessed. It's some subset of people who had some other sort so of So isn't that going to screw up the class certification in the long run? You know, it would if the cases ever got that far. You know, really, because most of them settle, when you settle, you want to settle with the broadest class possible. So you'll include all the people who made a purchase within a certain window of time. But it adds an air of unreality to these these cases. And then the bank, uh, the banks have the yeah. other case. And right? then the bank, the bank, there's another case in the Western District of Pennsylvania going uh, forward on behalf of the banks for the uh, cost of replacement cards and related uh, processing uh, for, you know, getting these replacement cards out. What's interesting about that case is that the court actually allowed uh, a motion, a, a claim for negligence to, per se to proceed on the basis of an FTC Act claim, uh, which is sort of a breach of the FTC Act, which is sort of strange because the FTC Act doesn't prescribe cybersecurity standards. It, it certainly does not. Although the FTC will tell you that, that there's common sense standards that they have encouraged people to uh, adopt. If you just read all 65 of their uh, uh, consent decrees, you'll, you'll be sufficiently attuned to security to uh, solve all security problems. Right. So per se. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, well, Facebook uh, has lost one uh, and Twitter won one. Uh, this is the new fad out of Silicon Valley is suing on behalf of the privacy rights of your users, even when your users uh, uh, haven't been able to get into court. Uh, Facebook uh, brought a lawsuit uh, against uh, the New York DA who had uh, uh, sought to do a kind of bulk search warrant to look at the uh, um, Facebook records of, a, of hundreds of people, police uh, union members mainly, who they thought were malingering and making uh, claims that uh, would be disproved by the pictures of them uh, um, skiing and uh, uh, snowboarding and uh, uh, engaging in beach volleyball uh, on their Facebook uh, pages. Uh, uh, Twitter or uh, Facebook said, you can't get hundreds of uh, uh, search warrants at one t- go, uh, and they lost that. And then on appeal, we're told, well, really, we don't let people appeal from uh, decisions to grant search warrants. So uh, you're out of luck. Um, these individuals will have to contest the search warrant when they are charged with um, uh, uh, fraud. Um, now it turns out they probably got 150-some decisions um, guilty pleas, uh, essentially, without anybody challenging the search warrant. So that search warrant uh, uh, challenge and the effort to, to give the intermediary standing to challenge it has failed. Twitter, however, had a uh, success. They uh, um, brought a claim uh, rejecting a, uh, um, uh, a subpoena that CBP had issued trying to get access to uh, one of the uh, – um, dissenting career official 
Twitter feeds. Uh, so this is called Alt CSIS, uh, and, or Alt US CIS, uh, CSIS. Um, basically some immigration officials who are anonymously tweeting their dissent from the immigration policies of the Trump administration. Somebody in CBP served a subpoena on what sounds like a kind of questionable ground. Uh, Twitter went to court to challenge it and uh, CBP withdrew the subpoena. So uh, this tactic is paying off enough that I predict we'll see more of this from uh, uh, Silicon Valley companies. Uh, and speaking of stuff we're going to see more of is LabMD uh, litigation. Uh, uh, they brought a First Amendment case. I don't know if you looked at this, uh, Jennifer, but they brought a First Amendment Bivens claim against the FTC officials who investigated them, claiming that the FTC officials got much more aggressive in their investigation and uh, their recommendations for uh, uh, relief uh, after uh, uh, Michael Daugherty published a book about the FTC entitled The Devil Inside the Beltway, uh, with the FTC playing this, the title role. Uh, and, uh, and he has survived a motion to dismiss. To, to dismiss Yes. I mean, you know, the fact pattern of this case is worthy almost of a TV show episode. Oh, it, it will be a TV episode. Jeff Daugherty has anything to say about it. Daugherty wants him. Well, he, he's actually <laughs> yeah, I, I think <laughs> that's right. Yes. <laughs> well, right. So, so it's very, very interesting, um, just in the sense that, so a Bivens action is a claim for damages against individual uh, federal employees. And so uh, these claims are allowed to proceed against several uh, FTC employees uh, based on the allegation that they were um, motivated by it was retaliatory, essentially um, the prosecution. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, you know, uh, while I like Darty, uh, I'm not sure he's going to win this one when it come when the time comes because the FTC is always vindictive and harsh and uh, uh, throwing the book at people if they don't settle. That's just their business model. Right. Well, I think it also raises some interesting questions about what uh, litigation risks are entailed in business development in the cybersecurity industry, right? I mean, it, it has a lot of facets. Yes, it, yes, it does. Story. Well, as, as you may know, the book uh, is full of vignettes of members of the privacy bar in Washington, uh, giving Doherty advice he didn't like and, and his scathing view of the people who gave him that advice. Uh, Are you in the index? Or? I am not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or I wouldn't be mentioning it. <laughs> All right. And um, uh, Massachusetts, there's a Massachusetts lawsuit uh, by James O'Keefe. Um, this is the guy who did all the hidden camera stings on liberal icons. Uh, uh, and right. So in that respect, maybe the only victory for liberals we can recount on today's podcast. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's, I'm not sure it's a it's that big a victory. Uh, uh, he has brought a lawsuit saying I ought to be able to do undercover stings. Uh, and uh, the only thing that's standing in my way in Massachusetts is this uh, uh, pesky law that says everybody in the conversation has to consent to the uh, 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 to the taping of the conversation. Uh, and uh, he's gotten a, he's gotten a little bit of uh, uh, traction in that uh, the court has said, or at least courts in Massachusetts have said, you can tape 
public officials carrying out their official business. Right. There was in, concern in about, yes, p- about political figures and in particular about the inability to record law enforcement, which has become very, right. uh, you know, sort of hot issue. So, or, or maybe United Airlines officials right. or, uh, employees <laughs> exactly. dragging people The belly buttons <laughs> of disgruntled customers. But um, in any event, yeah. So, uh, but that, that was done in a prior case, right? So that, that aspect of the Massachusetts uh, law was overturned uh, related to public officials was overturned in a case brought by the ACLU. And so the issue that was teed up in this case uh, brought by Project Veritas was just this question of whether or not you could record private uh, private individuals. And the court uh, rejected a, a challenge to the statute, but gave him an opportunity to replead. So we'll see what he comes up with. Yeah, I, I, I can't help pointing out that this is my my view of privacy law is it always turns out that the things we're trying to protect we're losing because of the technology not because of the law and we're substituting the law for the technology for technological change and that inevitably fails uh, and we end up uh, thinking well why did we pass that law anyway? Uh, and we ended up with, you know, remarkably uh, foolish laws. Uh, uh, and this is this is uh, one of them. Happens all the time. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, Germany sees a cyber threat and uh, doesn't know how it's going to actually retaliate if uh, uh, if a threat turns into an actual attack. Uh, uh, Maury, Jamil, uh, your thoughts on uh, the um, the German statement that you know, we just don't have a, the legal authority to, to attack if somebody attacks us? Well, it's really interesting. You know, I mean, this is this is similar to the same conversation we've been having here in the United States about authorities and roles and responsibilities. You know, Germany in a lot of ways divides up. Uh, their uh, both cyber defense, cyber response, is way similar to ours. Uh, in fact, they're standing their cyber command set that stands up tomorrow, the yep. operational tomorrow. Um, and I think the real challenge here is this question of authorities, and then once you have authorities, the rules of engagement, um, and then whose job is it to do what, and when do you go from you know defend to attack? Um, these are problems that we face in this country. We haven't resolved here today ourselves, and I think Germany's facing exactly the same problem today. I, my my sense is that Germany has a bigger problem that they are much more law bound than we are even uh, uh, and uh, significantly uh, less law bound than uh, 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 a few other uh, countries uh, Maury, what's your sense about uh, what is uh, what the German approach to these issues is and how serious is their lack of legal authority to uh, to take action well I agree with you that Germany is more law bound on these things particularly you know privacy-related things. Um, uh, you know, in the U.S., we, as Jamil pointed out, we're having the same debate, um, but we know that the military is doing some offensive cyber operations. I wonder what is actually happening in Germany with the intelligence services and things like that. But my bigger question is, the things that people have worried about about the U.S. elections are not, the, uh, with like Russian interference, are not things that are easily addressed with retaliation. It's mass... Uh, fake news farming out of Montenegro and things like that. I'm not sure that uh, it's a tool that fits the fear. That's interesting. So this may be the German deep state uh, lobbying for the legal authority they'd like to have, not because they need it for to protect their election, but just because they'd like to have it. Yeah, that's my that's my guess. And and my guess is that they probably have a little more covert authority than is visible, but less 
than there is in the United States. Yeah, or maybe less than they'd like. Okay, last question, uh, uh, last uh, uh, topic. Uh, I am struck by the... uh, uh, the fact that India has created this massive database of uh, 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 practically every uh, Indian national now has their fingerprints and their irises in a database that uh, uh, keeps track of the uh, of their identities, uh, and that um, the government has defended that database very aggressively against uh, uh, Indian Supreme Court decisions, trying to make sure that the collection of that stuff remains voluntary, and the government is just blowing those uh, judicial limits off and saying, no, we we really want this to be mandatory. We're going to make it, uh, if you want to get any benefits at all from the government, you're going to have to join this database. Uh, I thought this is um, it's fascinating how aggressively the Indian government is pursuing this. Yeah, it's happened sort of without us watching. This started in 2009, where somebody in India has been watching, but, you know, this is just recently come to my attention how extensive it is. And I thought it was particularly interesting that the Supreme Court in India has repeatedly said that this system can't be made mandatory, but 99% of the people have it. And the government has said you needed to file your tax returns, to which the, I think it was the finance minister said, are you actually requiring it, even though the Supreme Court says you can't? And he said, yes, we are. So it's an interesting battle between the government and the rule of law. Yeah, well, it, it, you know, this is there. There's a little civil libertarian movement to prevent uh, to to guarantee anonymity, uh, and uh, um, they they keep losing. Uh, they they'll, they'll uh, make one step forward and two steps back, but this this is uh, sort of a billion and a half steps back. Uh, having India join this um, uh, uh, attribution program. All right. Maybe it's how it's going to look everywhere. Uh, that's my guess. Um, I, Jamil, uh, fresh from uh, uh, your uh, uh, winning the battle to get uh, Neil Gorsuch confirmed, any other uh, events, uh, papers, uh, speeches you're going to be giving soon that we should tell our uh, listeners about? Well, thanks for asking, Stuart. So, um, you know, we've stood at the Zoo National Security Institute, George Mason, so I would like to yes. mention that real quickly. Um, the idea be- behind it being uh, we're going to bring together practitioners like yourself that have been um, in the government, bring academics together, and you'll provide balance to this debate. You know, some of the things that you guys have done on this podcast is really bringing in people with different views and having that conversation yep. that's so hard to have in the modern era because people get isolated in their camps and sort of, you know, throw bombs at one another and don't really have that conversation and it's hard to do in academia, and we're going to try and do that out at George Mason uh, with, with the, you know, the newly renamed Scalia Law School um, and have that intellectual conversation. And we'd love to work with, with Steptoe and, 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 the, and the listeners out there and, and do more of that. Um, so, so more to come um, in the, 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 at the uh, George Mason Cyber uh, sorry, National Security Institute. Sounds good. Yes, I'm on the advisory board for whatever that's worth and yes. uh, very enthusiastic about it. Okay. Uh, and uh, now we'll turn to our uh, interview, which we actually recorded yesterday, uh, with Nick Weaver. All right, we're actually doing our interview today ahead of the news roundup, uh, and our guest for the interview is Nick Weaver, Senior Researcher of Networking and Security at the International Computer Science Institute at Berkeley, uh, uh, and uh, a frequent contributor to uh, what I would describe as 
technically informed policy yet, uh, discussions, blogs and the like, including lawfare, including war is boring. Uh, um, and so wh- what I thought we ought to t- do is just walk through some recent stories and ask Nick to uh, give us his sense of what some of the policy implications are. So over the weekend, uh, uh, we got yet another dump of uh, tools aimed at embarrassing the U.S. intelligence community. Shadow Brokers uh, uh, released the uh, password to their encrypted um, uh, file. And, of course, we've just had a couple of uh, WikiLeaks releases of the Vault 7 uh, uh, files, which are widely speculated to be CIA uh, tools. Uh, And I have to say, my impression is uh, uh, deeply embarrassing, but uh, uh, not actually much uh, news in what was disclosed. Generally true. So let's first get rid of the shadow broker stump. Mm-hmm. That appears to be really old, stuff that dates back to 2005, perhaps. Um, the only real part of embarrassment is a list of mail servers that the NSA popped, which is kind of their job. So, oh, my God, there's spying going on in the NSA. Uh, so what this means, I assume Shadow Brokers is the Russians. I, uh, I, uh, let me know if you disagree. Uh, uh, and so they had this hanging around and they packaged it up with some more recent stuff and then encrypted it as, in order to uh, prevent people from seeing how old it was. Yeah. So what they did is um, several months ago, they released a big dump of stuff and they had this free file, which dated back to 2013 and it included two router zero days for Cisco's and a bunch of router tools. But at the same time, they also had this encrypted auction file, which was just pure Dr. Evil theater, pay $1 billion for my laser (laughs) sharks kind of thing. But that was as a way of basically preceding this second encrypted file with the implicit threat of, hey, NSA, play nice, or we could release this blackmail stuff on you. Unfortunately, we got the blackmail stuff on Saturday, and it turned out to be Old Things like attacking postfix versions dating back to 2003. There's yeah. no indication of any actual zero days. So this must have been stolen at a different time, maybe by a different person? Quite probably. Um, but there is stuff that is embarrassing because there are a couple of files that list known compromised machines for purposes of stepping stones and the like. Ah. And these were a bunch of mail servers in various countries, China, Korea, Japan, basically places that the NSA is supposed to be spying. And uh, what about the uh, Vault 7 stuff? Uh, um, uh, WikiLeaks made a big deal about how it showed that uh, uh, the CIA was trying to uh, present itself as some other country and that uh, a lot of the uh, um, uh, tools that were released were going to make it possible to find the CIA uh, operations retrospectively all around the world. Well, the latter has actually come to pass. So there's basically two objectives, as far as I can tell, in the WikiLeaks dump. The first is a hack of the press, and the second was to provide technical information that would lead to retrospective attribution of CIA incidents. And the latter has come to pass. Semantic reported over the weekend that four different Malcode families that were very rare um, seen like, 
20, 30 times, once in the U.S. and immediately deleted in the, oops, this is a U.S. computer, <laughs> right. we better, better delete this because otherwise it's a ton of paperwork. Um, that came to pass. So a lot of the tools were aimed at that. The other factor that WikiLeaks was doing was trying to hack the press, and they really did a good job of this with their initial dump. So the initial dump was huge, just volumes of stuff. And WikiLeaks launders their reputation. So WikiLeaks has yet to be caught fabricating documents. Right. But they have yet to be... They they have a reputation for dishonesty on their analysis, right? But they use the and that's been true from the beginning, as I remember. I, even even some of the films that they released uh, uh, had uh, very um, uh, uh, biased I, re- uh, uh, discussions of what did it, what did it really show. I think, though, it's more over the past few years as uh, Julian Assange has been cooped up in the embassy avoiding the sexual assault uh, investigation. (laughs) Um, Now, the hack of the press was quite effective on the first go-round because they had, like, the CIA hacks you through the Samsung TVs. Yes, that's right. I actually did a good piece with On the Media. On the Media interviewed me on this, and we went through it in detail. Um, They've had less success with their uh, later dribbles. So they've been going with uh, bits and pieces, um, and their false flag uh, hype that they've been trying has not been catching on because they've been releasing – too little information, so the tech reporters can process it. Ah, so they actually can say, does this make sense? No, it doesn't. I'm not going to take that tech. Or that, um, and so this was the case with the recent release of the obfuscation framework. This has specifically been released in this form to enable attribution and to force the antivirus companies to uh, develop attribution mechanisms. And that was quite effective. However, there's one other story on Vault 7 that I really wish got covered. Where's the arrest? Yeah. I mean, because, and, and, and uh, isn't that, uh, um, I mean, you, you have said this, that uh, the, um, the information came out at a particular time. It's, you can identify within a week where it was t- when it was taken. Yes. So what happened is sometime about a year ago, um, somebody downloaded a huge amount of stuff from the Atlassian Confluence server. So the server used for collaboration amongst people. Mm-hmm. And so we know it's within a very narrow time window because we look at the date stamps on the documents and you go, okay, it must be after this date and people are doing enough changes that you know it's only within a few days. So they've got all the logs. They've, they've, they've got audits. They ought to be able to uh, identify everybody who had access, right? Yes, and that's why the lack of arrest I find surprising because unless the NS or unless the CIA was absolutely incompetent in their spending on insider threat, you you could find out this person within an hour of WikiLeaks having gone live with that 
document them. Well, so I can think of a couple of possibilities. Maybe you should be checking for obituaries of people who work for Booz Allen and Hamilton. Uh, Or uh, you should look for people who took long vacations uh, in Russia and never came back. Uh, This was not Snowden. There's... This is way after the Snowden stuff. And also, um, let's be thankful Snowden at least thinks of himself as a patriot because he didn't give this stuff to WikiLeaks. And there's undoubtedly stuff in the uh, NSA cache that Snowden took that would be very embarrassing and great with uh, Julian Assange's alley. And so this is one of the reasons why I think we can be confident that the Russians and the Chinese didn't get Snowden's documents. Because they would be using them by now. Oh, yeah, because think of the damage that could be okay. done. Yeah, all right. So what does this tell us? You know, the, uh, the ACLU now has a standard uh, press release for these things and saying, this shows that we should never uh, be hoarding uh, vulnerabilities in zero days. Uh, uh, and if only the NSA and CIA had given all these uh, uh, attacks to the manufacturers, we'd all be safe. Uh, uh, You've been skeptical of that. Uh, what's your sense about what this does tell us about BEP, the vulnerabilities equity process, and whether it ought to be changed, continued, etc.? Well, first of all, um, let's actually separate out the process from the magic unicorns that people think it means. <laughs> so there seems to be this attitude amongst a non-trivial number of peoples that if you actually did an equities analysis, you'd disclose. But really, let's be honest. I'm a NSA guy. I just got myself a nice iOS zero-day exploit chain. Fair market price on this is $1.5 million. I'm not going to want to give up this asset unless it actually hurts my opposition more than me. Right. And losing this asset is a big deal um, because you're... That's what Value the, that's goes what to the zero. real argument is in the VEP. They say, look at the people that we have compromised with this, uh, uh, and we have, uh, for whom we have no other mechanism for getting access. Uh, uh, and that is deeply troubling to uh, policymakers. Ah, oh, come on. This is, the thing is, is these zero days, there's this fetishization of zero days that uh, the Gruck has a great set saying, worrying about zero days is like worrying about ninjas when you have coronary heart disease. <laughs> um, the, the real question is, is when the tools get compromised and vulnerabilities get compromised, um, I'm glad to say that my girlfriend's iPhone was responsible for blowing one bad dude's set of zero days. Oh, nice. Um, hint, if you want to uh, hack people as a repressive uh, regime, hack all the terrorists you want. Do not hack the peaceful activists. They have support infrastructure mm-hmm. and will gladly burn your zero days. Um, so what you're, the lesson you're drawing is um, that – there were a bunch of exploits that were compromised by shadow brokers in Vault 7, uh, or at least some, that uh, people, once they saw these things coming out, the, the agencies involved, could have said, uh, let's figure out what the worst case is and start reporting these to the manufacturers. Well, it's slightly more subtle. So there should be a policy that 
if a exploit is in an adversary's hands, you should report it. Right. Um, and in fact, I would strongly encourage the NSA with their global intrusion detection system that they call a spying apparatus to do more intrusion detection system and burn some other people's zero days. Um, Maybe, you know, uh, the tit-for-tat nature of uh, intelligence is, is pretty clear, and so I would not be surprised if there is a response to Shadow Brokers and uh, Vault 7. Yeah, but so with Shadow Brokers, though, the first dump, the, the one uh, last year, did include two zero days for Cisco routers, and this says one of two things. Either the NSA didn't know that their tools got stolen, right. which is bad, or they did know their tools got stolen and didn't notify Cisco. And that's worse. And we don't know which one of those cases it is, whether they just got their tools stolen and didn't know about it or got their tools stolen and didn't notify. Because the Cisco one, that was actually a big deal vulnerability that so, really you know, hurts as us. Soon as, as soon as Cisco fixes that, the people who stole it, Realize that their theft has been compromised, and that that's that's not necessarily a reason not to not to patch it, but it is part of the uh, uh, the calculus of risk. Except that bugs are not always killed by disclosure; they they can be independently found. So Fair the there there is that Rand study which says that. Yeah, most zero days are independent, but there does seem to be a attrition rate where vulnerabilities are patched either through incidental changes or independent discovery. That's the impression I got from that RAND study is that uh, uh, basically this idea of finding and killing bugs one at a time with your shoe is not what destroys uh, the uh, uh, intelligence apparatus. It is that people release new versions and the new versions don't work the way the old version did. Maybe they patch stuff. Maybe they just work differently and they wipe out the, the, the bugs at a, you know, kind of a 5% a year. Uh, also, sort of way. there's software hardening that makes things a lot harder. Mm-hmm. So um, these days, a lot of the randomization and code injection stuff makes exploiting a lot trickier and right. it often means you need to be interactive to exploit so for example you have to be able to query things to get magic numbers to change how your exploit right. actually operates and that actually removes a fair number of vulnerabilities but bugs are independently discovered so if the NSA knows that their tools got stolen they could engineer a little bit of an accidental discovery or yeah. like you're right uh, or or just say here's a an approach to security that you might want to implement soon uh which uh has the byproduct of wiping out the vulnerability. yes yeah, although there is actually a real case of somebody finding out that they had a vulnerability changed on them where they provably couldn't so this is the Juniper dual EC bug, which, or vulner, uh, sorry, dual EC Trojan that was discovered just before the last time I was on here, but it was yes. too new and the, I remember out. this. And it, it hasn't gotten as much coverage as it could. It was a striking, I mean, it gives the, I got the impression that the 
uh, there was a uh, vulnerability more or less introduced. The vulnerability then had to be patched in order to provide. Uh, no, uh, it's actually more subtle. Okay. So there's this great paper by Checkaway et al. Right. Um, we have to thank the guys in the at the fort for so improving our knowledge of applied kleptography. It's amazing. Um, and so they actually analyzed what had happened. And so Juniper ended up switching their random number generator to a two-stage approach that used dual EC and then another random number generator. Mm -hmm. And in that point, they tried to make it look like it was safe because dual EC, even at the time, was known to be Trojanable. Right. So it was known to be a backdoor. So they said we have a second uh, uh, random number generator, uh, which you can use. And, and then And then it turned out that it didn't actually get used. Uh, it was actually more subtle. There were several changes that were all intended to make it look like the dual EC usage was safe, but it was not. Mm -hmm. So this was clearly done by an insider and clearly to introduce a backdoor where a somebody looking at the traffic could see a single handshake and break all the communication. Right. So this was clearly somebody talked to Juniper or Juniper employees. And persuaded them to do this. Persuaded them to do this. And to be honest, dual EC is one of the best backdoors because it actually is a keyed backdoor. Which means it's no bus, as they say. Right? It actually is. That if I'm the one who has the key and it's safe, we're safe. Assuming you trust me. Right. I'm so trustworthy. <laughs> but if I remember right, wasn't there a point at which somebody else hacked Juniper, Juniper and changed the code so that suddenly it was uh, uh, nobody but somebody else? Yes. In fact, actually, what happened is somebody else goes, oh, nice backdoor you got here. Let's just rekey the lock. So if you have a backdoor, you just take out the cylinder, put in a new cylinder. So and they're, they're in and you're locked out. Yes. And the problem is, is whoever had done the backdoor in the first place ended up with a problem of they couldn't tell Juniper because to tell Juniper would have been to admit that they oh. were using oh. the backdoor right. because that's the only way that you'd know that the backdoor got changed on you because you put your key in and it jams. Could be. I, or maybe they uh, uh, they didn't want. Well, who, who knows? I, you I, you can't tell without yeah, having revealed right. you a massive secret. Yes, that okay. the only way you could tell is to reveal that you were doing bulk. But you cannot leave. Easy. You can't leave it like that either. No, they had no choice yeah. because anything that would have led to told Juniper about it would have instantly revealed that the NSA was, or whoever it was, was specifically doing this as a backdoor. So but it gets better. Okay. So, spy agency number two comes along, rekeys the backdoor. Spy agency number one is gripey. Spy agency number two is doing a happy dance. And then spy agency number three comes along and does an unrelated backdoor. Goes, hey, let's backdoor the SSH demon. So now if they you also, this is, this is like the third party with access to Juniper's source code uh, to read and write it. Yes. Okay. And so let's build in basically a stupid magic password for the SSH. So you go knock, 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 and you get in. Okay, so I'm guessing spy agency number 
two, the one who's doing the happy dance, uh, is the Russians, because it's clever and kind of up yours. Uh, or and French, then, or the Israelis. Yeah, okay. Yes, that, I, fair enough. Yeah. And then the last is somebody less sophisticated, more likely the Chinese. Or somebody who didn't really realize that there was already this other backdrop. <laughs> too, so, too dumb to do the, uh, uh, to do the Chinese. No, it, it, it's serious work to show that the dual EC usage was a backdoor. It's right. a serious academic paper to prove it. And so, well, they go, and then that gets discovered after a while, and Juniper goes through and does a patch. And in that patch, they not only remove the backdoor, but they also change the dual EC parameters back. Right. And of course, when the announcement of a patch that this is due to removing a backdoor, everybody goes, okay, so how did the backdoor work? Oh, there's the magic login string that got removed. Oh, that's cool. Did a nice job of disguising it like parentheses, like a debugging string. Oh, and what are these random numbers? They look like dual EC parameters. It- and so spy agency number three comes along and ruins everybody's fun. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yes, I suppose you're right. It could have been somebody that, uh, well, I, I, I'm guessing in this area there aren't a lot of, of people that uh, the U.S. would have allowed to have access that locked them out. No, the thing and, is, is... So that has to be hostile. Um, no, it it could be friendly well, let's face it, Israel and France need to be considered hostile in this space. I so think that's probably right. Um no, but it had to be somebody who has a the the spy agency number two had to be one that has a large amount of passive wiretap capability. Um because that's how you use the backdoor. Okay. Um but just, um whoever like Israel. But they've got probably good stuff around the neighborhood that they care about. Um, And the problem is, is spy agency number one could not have told Juniper about this because... Not without disclosing what had been going on. Yeah. And to disclose that that spy agency number one was breaking dual EC in this case would have caused people to go back and look at the FIPS parameters at the time, too, because this was before the Snowden revelations when dual EC was suspect and... There was a patent for it for using as a backdoor and Niels Ferguson's crypto rump talk. But to actually reveal that it was being operationally used would have been huge. So they couldn't do a thing about it. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, 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 fascinating because uh, it shows everybody has the same targets. Everybody mm-hmm. is, you know, uh, they're there's an intimate relationship here between uh, spy agency number one and spy agency number two. Maybe maybe not a comfortable uh, intimate relationship, but uh, they both knew exactly what the other was doing. And this uh, is also why we in the security field hate backdoors, is because they get used against us. All right. Uh, yes, maybe. Uh, but, you know, you know, my view is that Apple's uh, ability to update its code is, is the ultimate backdoor and uh, it does not get misused. And... The problem is, is any use of that that weakens security is making vaccines toxic. And no, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that. I think you can, it, it, you just, you just say this is the code for this machine. I'm only going to you, and I'm going to no. sign it with my, if you do my private code. Malicious updates. Malicious updates kill computer security. The 
biggest revolution in computer security these days is systems that update themselves automatically. We but cannot they, they disrupt have, they that have, trust. They have to, they have to, whoa, whoa. If we disrupt that trust, forget computer security, I'm going off the grid in a shack in Montana with with signs posted, trespassers will be shot, survivors will okay, be shot well, again. I, I, I will uh, I'll come visit you because uh, uh, that's where we're going. Uh, I don't uh, think and- so because it truly – you oh, because what? Because you trust Apple more than you trust the United States government? I don't. I, I trust them to make as much money as they can, and they will make as much money here by portraying themselves as privacy protectors, and they'll make as much money as they can in China by doing what the Chinese government tells them to do. Um, except that they can't necessarily change things because they're a global company. They've been telling the Chinese you as much as they have oh, 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 I'm sorry. I, there has been that, those, that, that phrase used in the, 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 the dialogue, oh, but sorry, I don't think uh, it ran that way. We'll uh, bleep that out. <laughs> sorry about that. All right. Um, let me let me turn to some news items because we've just got a few minutes left and I want to see what you think of them. Uh, 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 three or four things that happened this week. Uh, um, BAE and PwC put out a, a report saying that uh, um, the uh, um, outsourced uh, IT suppliers are the targets of a bunch of Chinese hackers. Uh, surprise? I'd hope so. If the Chinese are competent, I'd assume that we're doing the same thing. Yeah. And should should we be worried? These are not big cloud providers. These are people that you don't know much about who are just more technically literate than the small and medium businesses they're supporting. Well, it's it's you have this problem with outsourced stuff is outsourcing your security. And these are security outsourcers. Mm-hmm. Um is really useful because most yeah, people you're going to get you're going to get better security than if you do it yourself. Yeah. The problem is is however this creates attractive single points of failure. Now, as long actually as it's the APT types, mm-hmm. we're actually probably in better shape because for so many of the businesses their worry actually isn't the Chinese or the Russians, it's the criminals. Okay, those guys are Russians too, but they're they're Russians foolish <laughs> and, enough to and, vacation. And as as the the arrest of uh, 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 Peter Severa uh, suggests, Happy there's, dance. <laughs> there's 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 very little difference uh, between the FSB and Russian uh, uh, cyber criminals. Oh, there's, there's, some. there's some. That yeah. guy was wanted for being a spammer, right? Um, and a bot master, and we've and doing, you know, some side jobs for FSB. It's actually unclear whether he did any of that. Okay. Okay. Um, that the um, there's starting to be some rumors about the the guys during the heyday of Viagra spam now doing some stuff for the FSB, but it's pretty minor. Um, in fact, actually, one of the most amusing things on that front was a few years back when uh, GlavMed and mm-hmm. uh, RX Promotions were hacking each other. <laughs> yes, um, that's right. <laughs> and and well, boxing each other, if I yeah. remember right. Yes. Oh, uh, we actually got their databases and turned it into an academic paper. Nice. Okay, so um, we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, I was I, what I was disappointed by is the report uh, didn't name any names of compromised uh, uh, service providers, uh, I, which suggests that they found out by uh, because they were providing security to those uh, service providers. Uh, um, what about uh, the 
Dallas weekend uh, exploit uh, uh, attacking their uh, uh, emergency sirens. Did you see that? That they uh, went off like uh, 15, 20 times uh, over, uh, you know, from midnight to about one in the morning. Um, I don't know any details on that, but no. I've heard third hand that a lot of this stuff is basically UHF, VHF radio stuff. Yeah, they did say that, that they were sure it was somebody close by. Yeah. Um, and there have been work going, you can do similar tricks to hack the emergency broadcast system. Yeah. Um, because again, that's in the clear and that <laughs> is basically signaling information and in-band signaling is Not without that. cryptographic authentication is nothing. <laughs> what about, uh, the, the thing that I, I thought was most interesting was the, uh, online bank in Brazil, Kaspersky did a report on this, where the entire infrastructure online was compromised uh, with a DNS hack, essentially. Their, uh, uh, all of their uh, online uh, addresses were uh, redirected uh, uh, by seizing control of the DNS uh, uh, credentials for like five hours. So if you went to your bank and, and it looked like you were logging on, you were just giving your credentials uh, to the the hackers who were in turn giving you a bunch of malware to wear for a while. Yeah, and that's a really clever attack. So what they did is they did the various ways of hijacking DNS. But once you get that, you still have to deal with the SSL. And so what I believe they did was use Let's Encrypt to create an SSL certificate. Yes, they did. And I I assume that it was an SSL certificate that had the name of the Brazilian bank in the string string, and then a bunch of other stuff uh, uh, that you hopefully aren't going to see. No, no, no. In fact, actually what it was is... Oh, that's right. They actually, since they had control, yeah. They could say, here, we, we control this site. DV certs. Yes. That a domain-validated cert is proof that you control the domain. So if you control the domain, you can generate a valid DV cert. This is why one of the other reasons why so much of the work on we don't trust TLS anymore because we don't trust all these certificate authorities like China right. um, is very useful. So if this bank use certificate pinning, mm-hmm. um, then everybody's browser who had previously attended the bank would go, this ain't right. Um, because I, I can't get there. Yeah. Um, and so... So th- I, my memory was they, they went to Let's Encrypt months before they actually pulled the, the, the scam off. Is that right? No. Um, they would have had, had to yeah. have done it right in that, yes. that, that five-hour period. But Let's Encrypt is designed for very quick yeah, DV search. Yeah, right around. Because that's the whole point is that it's basically a way of getting TLS up and running quickly. And to be honest, there's dozens of cert providers that will do zero turnaround time DV certs um, there's tons of them. It's just Let's Encrypt is free, and these guys were cheap. Yeah. Okay. And there's nothing really that uh, Let's Encrypt could have done. I mean, it's not as though they could have said we're we're not going to give you a an account uh, that has the name of some other some bank that's already got a trademark in that. Uh, uh, there are there are um, CAs that won't give you trademark. Uh, uh, domains. But in this case, if they had control of the domain, that's all they needed. Yeah, I think there is more that can be done in the future. 
on these instant DV certs. So there's these things called the certificate observatory. So um, there's a whole bunch of intrusion detection systems running around the world that all take every TLS certificate seen and forward it to ICSI, where a colleague actually collects all that data. Um, you could query that to go, what certs have been seen for this domain? And limit issuing a new domain or a new certificate for 24 hours Mm -hmm. if it's replacing an old one. So that would allow time for these sort of attacks to be detected. But something like that needs to be done by all providers of instant certificates. Good luck with that. I'm sure Let's Encrypt won't do that. Uh, They might. They um, they've been they've been very kind of determined, almost ideological about their business model, which is we we have to just turn it right around. Well, they have no business model. That's the problem. They well, have no funding. No, they're, 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 so they have to do it in the cheapest possible. Yeah. Um, fortunately, this sort of check would be cheap. It's the kind of thing that they could do within their workflow. Um, but you'd need to get all the other providers of instant DV certs to do the same thing. Um, and and this That's actually not going to be easy. No, but it's possible that uh, you have this hammer called Google. Yes, which has been, and they've been not shy about using their uh, their hammer. Uh, uh, semantic has learned. Uh, yeah, well, this hammer has been used elsewhere. Like uh, Scenic got smacked down for their stupidity, and as far as I know, I don't think they can do anything outside of China these days. Yep. All right. Well, I and I I I think. I think of Let's Encrypt as sort of Google's love child, uh, and so I'm not sure they're going to, you know, it's, it's it's part of the let's have HTTPS everywhere. Well, you right? have to. Um, and the reason why is because the Internet actually, there's this these things called middle boxes, little things that try think they're smarter than the traffic. And so as a consequence, these things actually can't take upgrading. And so HTTP2 offers much higher performance, but actually has to be encrypted just to keep these middle boxes from messing it up. And so this is actually why HTTP2 is encrypted only. It actually has nothing to do with security per se. It has to do with getting these middle boxes to not be able to do anything, because otherwise they'd screw it up. So... We'll have to uh, have this debate uh, next time. I think that um, the idea that there should be automatic um, connections direct from every desktop inside an organization to Google or to anybody is extraordinarily dangerous from a security point of view. If you can't you, see what the exfiltration is. If you want to do a in-path TLS stripping proxy, go ahead, do it. You can buy one. You you set the route. You have a nice day, Google. So your your objection is to the to the antivirus guys who do it and everybody who does it. Yeah, who do it badly. Right. And so there's so much stuff out there that gets it wrong. Um, that middle boxes are a plague on the internet. Like things that are like web caches, mm-hmm. half of them cache things that they shouldn't. Um, I. 
I'm flying back on United. I'm going to check the version of the in-path proxy, but I have bad feelings that it's still going to be this out-of-date thing with known vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. Middle boxes are a nightmare, and you have to encrypt to protect yourself from the middle box. But in a corporate environment, you can always do just the decrypt, re-encrypt proxy. But you are running significant risk with that. And, and you, you, have have to to own, you have to own the machine or, or have a, a yeah. You have to own the the machine. Uh, Um, You have to be able to specify the certificate, which you want to do anyway. You have to make sure that your box doesn't screw up because they did studies on a lot of these uh, decrypting middle boxes. They don't always do do it right. Yes. Oh, they don't verify the certs on the other side. That's right. I did see that. Okay. Um, Well, this has been terrific. Uh, We ran it over over time, but uh, I do want to say we always ask our guests if there's something they're planning to be doing or speaking or a paper they're releasing that uh, our audience ought to look for? Do you have anything coming up? Uh, no, I just rant on Twitter and I post on Lawfare. You do. You, you rant a lot on Twitter. It's, it's impressive. I, I, I'm not slacking. My code's compiling. Yes. I, well, it's, uh, you know, uh, I count on that because I, I'm a big nuzzle user. In fact, <laughs> that's the only way I really interact with Twitter uh, is uh, after three people I follow have validated a story, <laughs> then I'm going to read it. Uh, so I appreciate that you uh, produce a lot of useful uh, links. So I... Uh, uh, This has been uh, uh, Nick Weaver, uh, who's the Senior Researcher of Networking and Security at the International Computer Science Institute at Berkeley. Uh, uh, Thanks very much, Nick, for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks to Nick Weaver. Thanks to Jamil uh, Jaffer for joining us this afternoon, uh, uh, to Jennifer Quinn-Baravanoff and to Maury Shank. Uh, as always, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. Send us questions, candidates for interviews, topics uh, at cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com or leave us a really good review on iTunes. Uh, uh, we will read the best ones uh, when we find them. Uh, uh, and feel free to send us an email telling us about the good reviews that you left. Uh, um, also, you know, enthusiastic and entertainingly abusive uh, uh, comments are also always welcome. This has been episode 159 of the Stepto Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Stepto and Johnson. Uh, don't forget, if you uh, do suggest somebody and they come on the show, uh, we will provide you with a highly coveted uh, Stepto Cyber Law Podcast mug complete with logo. And Jamil, I see that your mug is right there on the table. We're about to uh, uh, provide it to you. So that's uh, terrific. Uh, drink it in good health. Thanks so much, Stuart. All right. Uh, coming up, we're going to have Michael Schmidt, uh, a professor of public international law at three different universities, uh, who will be talking with us about the uh, uh, Talon 2.0. Uh, we hope you'll join us for that and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 